0: It's the Victorian Variety Show. It was a long avenue, but at length, I stood in front of the hall. A square, solid-looking, old-fashioned house, three stories high, with no basement. A flight of steps up to the principal entrance four windows to the right of the door, four windows to the left, the whole building flanked and backed with trees. All the blinds pulled down, a dead silence brooding over the place, the sun westering behind the great trees studding the park. I took all this in as I approached, and afterwards, as I stood for a moment under the ample porch, Then, remembering the business which had brought me so far, I fitted the great key in the lock, turned the handle, and entered Ladlow Hall. For a minute, stepping out of the bright sunlight, the place looked to me so dark that I could scarcely distinguish the objects by which I was surrounded. But my eyes soon grew accustomed to the comparative darkness, and I found I was in an immense hall, lighted from the roof, a magnificent old oak staircase conducted to the upper rooms. The floor was of black and white marble. There were two fireplaces, fitted with dogs for burning wood. Around the walls hung pictures, antlers, and horns, and in odd niches and corners stood groups of statues and the figures of men in complete suits of armor. To look at the place outside, no one would have expected to find such a hall. I stood lost in amazement and admiration, and then I began to glance more particularly around. Mr. Garrison had not given me any instructions by which to identify the ghostly chamber which, I concluded, would most probably be found on the first floor. I knew nothing of the story connected with it, if there were a story. This is the Victorian Variety Show Podcast, in which I usually take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. But sometimes I look at some part of life from that era that is covered a lot by contemporary media, but instead of just going along with the predominant narrative, I question where that predominant narrative comes from and how accurate it is, which is what I'm going to do this week. My name is Marissa, And the excerpt I just read is taken from an 1882 story by Irish writer Charlotte Riddle or Riddell, I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, called The Open Door, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources I looked at in putting this episode together. I thought Riddell's passage did a good job of setting the tone for this week's topic, haunted Victorian houses but aside from one or two well-known exceptions that I briefly discuss as examples, my intention with this episode is not to focus specifically on particular houses, but rather on how houses built during the Victorian era acquired a reputation for being haunted in more contemporary times. And before I go any further, I want to make it clear that if you're a skeptic, first of all welcome, And my intention is not to convince you that ghosts exist, or that any houses are, quote-unquote, haunted. So every time I use that word from now on, you can imagine air quotes around it. I personally consider myself a skeptical believer. I've had a few experiences that I can't explain. And I'm a big fan of a number of ghost hunting and other paranormal TV series but I also thoroughly enjoy debunking some of the quote-unquote evidence I see on those shows. So I think it's important to approach any news of a haunted Victorian house with a critical eye and ear. However, I also think it's a good idea to look at how the legends surrounding many of these houses originated and what their continued popularity says about us and our fears. Also, Even though I started this episode with a passage from a story that takes place in England, most of my focus right now is going to be on haunted Victorian homes in the United States, partly because the majority of the information that I found on this topic so far focuses on the U.S but also because the thousands of hours—I'm not kidding here—that I've spent streaming Discovery Plus have made me more familiar with haunted houses in the U.S. than anywhere else. However, I am going to continue researching this topic, because I would like to look at the type of reputation Victorian-era houses have in England and other parts of the world in a future episode. But even though Hadley Mendelssohn tells us in The Real Reason Victorian Houses are always considered the most haunted, that the reason certain houses acquire reputations for being haunted tend to be quote-unquote culturally specific, and according to Toc Thompson, an anthropology professor at the University of Southern California cited by Mendelssohn, haunted houses frequently symbolize the fall of an aristocratic family that may have lived in the home for generations in Europe, whereas in the U.S. they often serve as a stand-in for corruption and some of the darkest incidents in American history, structural similarities can be seen in different locations. In some cases, it seems like architectural trends that became popular in Europe eventually caught on in the States. For example, in Blueprint for the Ultimate Haunted House, Victorian style, Anne Hovel tells us that much early American architecture was inspired by Georgian styles that were popular in England in the 18th and early 19th centuries and are characterized by symmetry. For example, the front of the house may have the door smack in the center of the first floor, surrounded by one equally spaced window on each side, with three equally spaced windows above these on the second floor spacious rooms with high ceilings, and detailed classical ornaments like columns. The combination of space and placement of windows often allowed for many rooms in these houses to be filled with light during the day. Many Georgian-style houses can still be found in the U.S., especially along the eastern seaboard, and I've seen ghost hunters visit a number of them, but that seems to be due more to their age and the number of people that have lived there rather than to elements of the house's design that may creep us out. However, as I've mentioned in a number of previous episodes, the Victorian era was a time of many transitions when many changes in thought and practice were occurring, and the supply to house design as well. According to a Masterclass article called Victorian Architecture, Three Characteristics of Victorian Architecture, there isn't a single quote-unquote Victorian style. Rather, Victorian is more of a blanket term that encompasses revivals of Gothic, Greek, and Romanesque styles, Italianate, French Second Empire, and the Queen Anne Revival style a notable example of which is the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California. What these different styles had in common was that they were more elaborate than Georgian and other previous types of architecture, which have a simpler or more practical feel about them, with elements like steeply pitched roofs, wraparound porches, and so-called gingerbread trim, and relied heavily on ornamentation ranging from large bejeweled chandeliers, flowery motifs, and statues that featured a variety of characters, ranging from cherubs to gargoyles and grotesques, which are my personal favorites. And going back to what I just said about rooms in Georgian houses allowing for plenty of light to enter, windows in homes built during the Victorian era were often covered with dark, heavy curtains possibly to protect rugs furniture and valuables from being bleached by the sun an article uninterestingly called architecture of fear the victorian haunted house cites a magazine article from 1859 they don't mention the name of the person who wrote it or the name of the article unfortunately I did spend some time looking for this, and if I do find it, I will mention it in a future episode. But this article from 1859 stated that, quote, Too much light is injurious to the objects on which it falls. Everyone knows that curtains and carpets are faded by the sun. It is desirable, therefore, to have the means of shutting out the light and this we can do satisfactorily by means of different kinds of blinds and curtains." It's important to stress that when many of these elaborate homes were being built, they were generally seen as quote-unquote fashionable. After all, the second half of the 19th century, especially following the Civil War, was a period of heavy industrialization and railroad expansion in the U.S., and abundant ornamentation and lavish decor were outward symbols of what was considered prosperity and progress. And the dimly lit areas that we now associate with haunted houses had a largely practical purpose to the extent that they prevented against sun damage. Still, Hubble reminds us, as if you need to be reminded if you're a regular listener of this podcast, that this influx of wealth coincided with new ways of thinking about spirituality and death. One common example you may have seen is mid to late 19th century photos of well-dressed people sitting around tables in dimly lit parlors, holding seances. And then there was Sarah Winchester, the super wealthy heiress who reportedly consulted a medium after losing her infant daughter, father-in-law, who had founded the Winchester Repeeing Arms Company and husband in a short span of time and, according to legend, continuously built additions to her aforementioned San Jose home, many of which seemed to have no practical purpose, such as the infamous stairs and doors that lead to nowhere, to appease the spirits of scores of Winchester rifle victims. There's a lot of information and media on the Winchester House, and I've never been there. So I can't say how haunted I think it is, although you'd better believe that if I ever make it out to California again, it's at the top of my list of places to visit. But Sarah Winchester is generally portrayed as an extreme example of someone whose strong spiritual side was reflected in her home. And, of course, when deaths occurred in middle- to upper-class Victorian families, there were numerous customs surrounding how a death should be announced to the neighborhood, for example, with a wreath of black crepe being hung on the front door, and acknowledged inside the home, such as the drawing of curtains, the covering of mirrors, and the stopping of clocks at the time of death. Plus, the deceased were often attended to by family members and laid out in the home, and many widows were confined mainly to the home during mourning periods that were largely socially constructed. So I think you can see how the association between the houses built during this time and the supernatural and death came about. Although it seems that the things going on inside these homes that are considered scary by today's standards, most likely didn't affect residents at the time as they would today despite the fact that many middle- to upper-class Victorians seem to welcome the supernatural into their lives and are often considered obsessed with death from a modern perspective. If they were obsessed with death, it was generally because they saw so much of it due to tuberculosis and other illnesses, war, accidents and such, and they needed to find ways to cope. The home was probably the most practical and convenient place for these coping mechanisms to take place, and neighbors probably saw enough of this happening to not consider it out of the ordinary. As a result, Victorian houses started to be considered haunted primarily after the Victorian period ended, in the early 20th century. In why are Victorian houses haunted? Crystal Decosta explains that the southern states were devastated from an economic perspective after the Civil War ended, and that even though the north was becoming more prosperous due to the growth of industry, that prosperity relied heavily on the influx of immigrants, who were often crammed together in tenements. This created a visible wealth disparity that only grew as time went on, which DaCosta says drew attention to the corruption that tends to go hand-in-hand with this type of system. In addition, after World War I ended, many veterans were returning to the States and becoming disillusioned by the fact that so much so-called advancement brought with it dirty factories and mass-produced goods that were poorly made. As a result, Victorian homes essentially became a visible representation of the wealthy, who were seen as perpetuating this corrupt and unfair system. And in the early to mid-1920s, visual artists began portraying Victorian homes as dark and decrepit. One example that I'm rather familiar with is Edward Hopper's 1925 House by the Railroad, which, according to the Museum of Modern Art, a.k.a. MoMA's website, quote, features a grand Victorian home, its base and grounds obscured by the tracks of a railroad. The tracks create a visual barrier that seems to block access to the house, which is isolated in an empty landscape, end quote. This move away from Victorian style accelerated in the 1930s and 40s during which the Great Depression and World War II occurred. And the colonial home style was revised, because, according to DaCosta, it was seen as representing an American ethic that embraced simplicity and frowned upon the type of excess that Victorian-style homes were considered a living embodiment of. In addition to the growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots in the U.S., the early 20th century was also the time when deaf care was moving out of the home and into the business world, with mortuary schools offering professional training for practices that had long been the responsibility of families, and funeral homes basically removing death from the home. According to DaCosta, Americans who considered themselves quote-unquote forward-thinking started to see Victorian funeral homes as a so-called perversion that they were eager to escape from. Also, Mendelssohn points out that run-down Victorian houses in the South tend to serve as a visual reminder of slavery and plantations, which in the vein of early 20th century american artists using victorian homes as metaphors for wider social themes you may have come across if you've read some of william faulkner's novels according to sarah leah burns a professor emeritus of indiana university cited in hubble's article large dilapidated southern homes are quote burdened by a history of violence whether it was family violence or the violence of the slave system, end quote. As Victorian homes became associated with things that Americans were eager to escape, and in many cases were abandoned, they ceased being seen as places of refuge, which the interestly piece describes as, quote, having a secure, protected place to hide where one can be sheltered from danger, end quote. The concept of refuge has a lot to do with how attractive a house appears to us, and when we don't perceive of it, we tend to feel helpless. In addition, Mendelssohn suggests that Victorian-era architecture and decor are themselves partly responsible for the haunted reputation that these houses have acquired due to features like diminished light entering through the windows and angles that created shadows as well as long, unused furniture becoming dusty and covered with cobwebs, ornamentation, and statues losing their luster, and that kind of thing. As a result, in addition to painters and Nobel Prize-winning writers, in other words, those who are in what is generally considered the so-called high arts, which, to be clear, is a distinction that I can't stand, but that's a topic for another podcast, the haunted Victorian house became a trope in popular culture as well. One very prominent example is the haunted mansion at Disneyland in Anaheim, California, which was inspired by several estates built during the late 1800s that had acquired reputations for being haunted, among them the Winchester House, according to Danny Gallagher, and five real houses that inspired the construction of the haunted mansion. And then... Interestly tells us that a friend of Walt Disney's whom you may have heard of, film director Alfred Hitchcock, visited the Haunted Mansion when he was looking for inspiration for the Bates House in Psycho. And there are the houses used in the Adams Family, the Munsters, and so many others that you might be thinking of. The Interestly piece asks whether pop culture was inspired by our fear of Victorian houses or taught us to be scared of them. Which I think is a great question. I'm going to start closing this discussion of how and why Victorian houses acquired a reputation for being haunted, but this is a topic that I find fascinating, and I hope to explore it more in future episodes. Even though many people during the Victorian era believed in ghost stories and folklore from previous eras, The reasons those who could afford to build these houses did so are very different from what we often associate these houses with today. And their relationship with the supernatural is also quite different than ours. So this seems to me like a good example of something that maybe wasn't particularly a big deal during the Victorian era, but since then, it's one that we've projected cultural attitudes, beliefs, and fears upon some of which are very valid. As for TV ghost hunting shows, once again, I think it's important to view popular narratives that you might hear about some of these houses with a critical eye, even if you believe in ghosts. Because while I do think some of the stories that I've seen are legit, There have been other instances in which I think the proprietors called the investigators there to attract more publicity, because after all, a lot of these shows are on the travel channel here in the U.S. But you can learn a great deal about some beautiful Victorian homes and the history of the areas surrounding them from watching these shows. And I think that's valuable information, even if you're a skeptic. But now... I would love to know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa D ninety six slash message. That's a lot of slashes. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash Victorian Variety One. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Marissa DF13, or leave a donation on my Linktree page, which I have a link to in the show notes, or if you're listening on the Good Pods app. I would also really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, every now and then I post a question in an attempt to make this show more interactive and to get to know my listeners a little bit better. I think it only appears on Spotify, but if you're listening over there, feel free to take a look to see if I might've posted a question and feel free to respond and who knows. I may even read your response on a future episode. Thanks so much for listening and for all of your support of my show. I'm so grateful for all of the feedback that I receive and the knowledge that people enjoy my show and learn from it. And I'm always looking for new topics to cover and ways to make this show even better. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but for now, I'm going to leave you with another excerpt from Charlotte Riddle's The Open Door to extend the eerie mood a bit longer and based on this discussion, maybe inspire you to look at Victorian era haunted houses in the arts and culture in a slightly different way. (music) The evening shadows were drawing on a pace So I hurried back into the hall, feeling it was a weird position to be there, all alone with those ghostly hollow figures of men in armor, and the statues on which the moon's beams must fall so coldly. I would just look through the lower apartments and then kindle a fire. I had seen quantities of wood in a cupboard close at hand, and felt that beside a blazing hearth, and after a good cup of tea, I should not feel the solitary sensation which was oppressing me. The sun had sunk below the horizon by this time, for to reach Ladlow I had been obliged to travel by cross lines of railway and wait besides for such trains as condescended to carry third-class passengers. But there was still light enough in the hall to see all objects distinctly, With my own eyes, I saw that one of the doors I had shut with my own hands was standing wide. I turned to the door on the other side of the hall. It was as I had left it, closed. This, then, was the room. This with the open door. For a second, I stood appalled. I think I was fairly frightened.